There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Monday morning, the 3rd of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Independent Review Group's report on the Defence Forces shines a light on criminality on a grand scale within the organisation. It is a shameful story that was brought to the public's attention by the Women of Honour. And the state owes these women a debt of gratitude uh, for the courageous campaign to shine a light uh, to the litany of shocking abuses within the Defence Forces. Uh, the Women of Honour were simply uh, women who sought to work in the service of the state. They put their lives on the line for us, and shockingly, their service was met by assault, rape, abuse, bullying, and discrimination. Uh, the people who were responsible for these actions went about their careers untouched. And firstly, I believe, um, that we need to make sure that we do right uh, by these women. Now, bad and all as it is that women were verbally abused, sexually harassed, sexually assaulted and raped frequently, the IRG report details many other reasons to be concerned about anybody, male or female, working in the Defence Forces or someone who is considering signing up. The reports published uh, this week basically states that the Defence Forces are not currently a safe place to work. Now, I would ask you genuinely, how many other organisations in the country where that existed would not have serious accountability in place already? Would there not be resignations in any other organisation in the country if that were the case? Can you think of any other organisation uh, in the country that had these types of wrongdoings brought to light, and there were no resignations that happened. Now, I personally believe, uh, at this moment in time, that the positions of many in the general staff are untenable uh, with regards to what's happened. These are not the first times that these uh, uh, situations have been brought to light. There have been uh, protected disclosures, there have been cases in the WRC, and yet, senior management and the general staff have not acted The department has not acted, and ministers for defence have not acted. 
And that has to change, and it has to change now. And twos, Patrick O'Bean speaking in the Dáil last week. There joins us on the phone now. And a very good morning to you, Patrick O'Bean. Thanks uh, for uh, taking time to be with us on uh, the programme today. We know that a statutory inquiry is going to be established. Uh, how that goes about its work uh, has yet to be agreed. But it could take years before that work is concluded. Uh, and it's clear listening to you speak there that you want accountability and you want accountability now, whether that means heads should start rolling or arrests should start being made. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I've been working with uh, the Women of Honour for the last 18 months. Indeed, I was the first to raise it in the doll 18 months ago. And uh, it's just really, really hard to understand uh, how the government are not implementing any level of accountability into the defence forces on this. So we know that accountability, first of all, is necessary for the achievement of justice. But accountability is the key catalyst of change. And if people can get away with criminal activities such as rape or sexual assault um, in the defense forces, or if other people can get away with just turning a blind eye or looking in a different direction, well, then it's really going to be practically impossible to change the culture uh, in the defense forces to make sure that women and men can do their job without fear or favour um, in, those, um, in those forces. But the government and, has you know, only received this report and has already said uh, it is going to legislate so that Angarda Siakana can investigate these crimes. Yeah, I, still, I, I believe, first of all, it, it, it is impossible to believe that uh, the senior general staff of, of the Defence Forces and in the department and the minister did not know that such a culture existed. Uh, we just very recently had um, the, the commission uh, in the uh, future of the defence forces, uh, which was a, a very detailed uh, report over the future uh, of uh, our defence forces. And this is not mentioned in it at all. Uh, we know, as I said in that clip that you, you, you played there, that there has been cases in, in the, the WRC and there has been protected disclosures. And these, indeed, these women have been trying to knock on doors all over the department, the, the political space, uh, for a number of years now. And, you know, we do have this very welcome mea culpa, uh, you know, in, 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 in this report. And, and I think, you know, it's, very, it's a positive thing that the information is clearly indicated here. But my worry is we often have governments giving fine apologies in the doll, um, and yet often they don't follow through in achieving justice. So, for example, in cervical check, we had the Taoiseach state um, that, that the state was sorry for what happened uh, to those women. Um, he said that no woman would ever have to go to court again to achieve justice. And yes, today, the majority of women who are still battling cervical check are doing so in the courts. And in some cases, they're being fought by the state up until the week of their death. So, you know, mm. Well, the government is promising action. Uh, maybe you're right that we've heard promises that haven't been fulfilled before, but time will tell if that will be the case this time around. Are you saying uh, you don't uh, believe uh, Lieutenant General Clancy, the Chief of Staff, uh, when he says he, he didn't know anything about this culture un- until recently? Well, um, in, in, with regards to Clancy, in fairness to him, he's come into the position since 2021, and um, so uh, he's not long uh, in the job. I mean, he's a long time in the army, isn't he? He is a long time in the army, and you know, 
I, I do find it very hard to believe that people did not know this, that these, uh, this culture existed. Mm. Um, and I do believe that, unfortunately, it was tolerated. Uh, now, on the specifics of what individuals... Well, do you think if he didn't know that he should have known? I do think so. I do. I think that if, if a person is running a shoe shop, if a person is mm. running a, a factory, if a person is running um, a, a large international company and you have this level of you know, uh, systemic abuse and cover-up happening, happening within those locations, that's by the very do, nature... Does it call into question Sean Clancy's role as Chief of Staff? Uh, is uh, there any question as to whether uh, that is now tenable? Well, I, I, I personally believe that the government uh, should be looking at each of the individuals uh, who are manage, managing mm. the, the defence forces. Including Sean Clancy. Serious questions. Um, I'm not going to give a, a, a definitive decision on radio in relation to Sean Clancy, but what I will say is that there's no doubt in my view that many members of the, the, the general staff, that is, the management of the defence forces, uh, have serious questions to answer. And... You know, as you said at the start of this interview, a commission of investigation could take 10 or 12, 14 years. And, you know, are we going to wait till that length of time before we have justice in relation to this? I do personally think that, you know, anybody with common decency in them who was in a senior management position at this time should take it upon themselves to relieve themselves of their responsibilities in terms of this. I can't, I can't see it happening anywhere else. In a school, in a university, in, in any business that, you know, like one of the sentences that jumps out of that mm. report, it says that women are barely tolerated mm. um, and that there was a discernible pattern of rape and sexual assault. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that nobody was ever brought to justice in relation to this. There was no criminal uh, sanction in relation to this. And, and you know, how, how can you run a business or an organization and, and, and state that your position is tenable when this is happening in, in your organization. It's just, it's, it beggars belief. And, and my worry mm. is that, you know, this, the, the commission investigation will kick this into touch uh, in many ways in the public eye for 10 years. And, and that's a whole other question that has to be resolved in this country. We need to find a system where we can investigate, hold people to account and where it's done in a timely fashion. Now, they say that there's a, a culture uh, in the Defence Forces uh, that, uh, or a perception in the Defence Forces uh, that a soldier is a big, strong man and it's no place for a, a woman. And that has led uh, to a lot of the attitudes. Uh, of course, uh, there is absolutely no excusing sexual harassment, sexual assault or rape, uh, which... Uh, seemed to be fairly commonplace uh, and it wasn't just women uh, who were being raped for that matter the report says uh, that uh, men were also on the receiving end uh, across the full spectrum up to and including rape that's right so this was happening to to men and women um, in the defense forces and one of the problems and we've seen it over and over again in this country is when there's wrongdoing there is an instinct often within an organization to protect the organization. And because of the nature of the defense forces, it may be that, that had the defense forces had an exaggerated um, view of, of, of that uh, idea. Um, you know, the best way to protect an organization is not to cover up the rape or the abuse uh, or the, the, the attacks. The best way to protect an organization is to find the truth and justice and hold the perpetrators 
to uh, account. And is that what you want to establish with uh, the leadership, uh, those uh, officers at the highest ranks within the Irish Defence Forces, as to whether they didn't know or they looked the other way or they facilitated and covered up these criminal acts? Yeah, so what we need is we need guard investigations into the criminal acts, uh, first and foremost. Uh, any, anybody who's assaulted in any ways uh, in the Defence Forces, there needs to be a guard investigation uh, into that, plain and simple. Uh, and then we actually need the government and the minister uh, to do his job in relation to this. And, and the ministers for defence, you know, there were Enda Kenny, Simon Coveney, Nihal Martin, and now Leo Varadkar. And that accountability doesn't finish just within the Defence Forces. We had a Department of Defence and ministers yeah. who presided over this as well. And obviously the rapists and uh, the people who assaulted colleagues uh, should be brought to justice. But what about uh, those who looked the other way or covered up? Should they uh, be brought before the courts as well? Well, where, where there is a criminal, um, a, a criminal act in relation to cover-up, um, they should be brought to the courts for sure. Um, but there's no doubt in my mind that uh, we cannot have a situation where the general staff, the majority of them, stay in place for the next 10, 12 years while this investigation is ongoing. Uh, and it would be just absolutely wrong. Um, you know, the, the level of, of rape, abuse, bullying and discrimination that happened on their watch uh, is an indictment against their, at the very least, lack of ability to manage the organisation that they are tasked to manage. They get paid a wage to manage an organisation. They clearly haven't done that at, at any level, and as a result, they shouldn't be in those positions. And that means that they are either fired or they, were, they are resigned. Um, and that, that's very, very necessary to make sure that we have a defence force which is fit for purpose. And, and there's two elements to this. We have a, a duty of care to those who are working in the service of the state. This type of action would be absolutely incredibly wrong if it were happening in a private company, but the fact that these men and women were working for the states, the states should have higher standards uh, than private companies in terms of making sure the people uh, are properly looked after. But the Defence Forces, in its own right, is actually in bits at the moment. You know, mm. the Defence Forces has, is, but is staffed at a level of 3,000 personnel less than what's considered to be um, necessary for this. Um, just 44 women joined the Defence Forces last year, and they make up about 7% uh, of the Defence Forces currently. Even though the government has a target, the women will make up 35% uh, of the Defence Forces. So we have a Defence Forces struggling to be able to do its job, and we have women voting with their feet in not joining the, the Defence Forces. Um, so we have a, an organisation, a structure, in disarray, and yet, the, the, the Minister for Defence, Leo Varadkar, is basically saying that the uh, senior management within those defence forces can stay where they are, and they're, they're, they're doing just fine, and it, it's good enough that they remain in place. I don't believe that's true whatsoever. Okay, we're going to leave it there for the moment, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. It is undoubtedly... Uh shocking, shocking tale uh, of shameful behaviour within the Irish Defence Forces and one that we're going to be talking about for years to come because of uh, this inquiry. How long? Uh, well, time will tell, but inquiries have started in the past uh, with uh, definite 
time limits on them and went on for years and years and years uh, but we certainly will be talking about it in the coming days and months a most shocking uh, thing for us uh, to try and get our heads around uh, a WhatsApp message uh, from somebody a couple of people in touch with us uh, a WhatsApp message from somebody who says it's disgusting and heads should roll uh, there is another WhatsApp message uh, from Tom, uh, who's in Leytown, I think he says, Dad's Army Women of Honour, when is Leo going? Thank you uh, for that as well. Uh, we uh, Deirdre saying, not right uh, to think that uh, members, women in the Defence Forces were raped. Something urgently needs to be done uh, and anybody uh, who was responsible for this should be jailed. But I think that's what normally happens to rapists, uh, Deirdre, and I think most decent thinking people would agree completely. John is in Navin and he says uh, he was watching the conduct of uh, TDs in the confidence debate last week and he saw them behaving like a bunch of kids squabbling in a schoolyard with sniping, name calling, belittling and downright insulting each other. The fact is, he says uh, that uh, these were grown-ups getting large salaries and behaving uh, in this way was no surprise because the shower of wastrels, he says, is wastrels a word, uh, most probably celebrating the Easter rising, wearing the little Easter lily while betraying the very ideals that those people fought and died for is enough to make anyone sick. Unfortunately, we're all stuck with the same useless shower. I'm not sure what side of the bed John get out of in Navin this morning, but thank you indeed uh, for your message. If you'd like to comment on the programme, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email Michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, yesterday was World Autism Awareness Day. The theme, Transforming the Narrative. Contributions at home, at work, in the arts and in policy making. Let's uh, speak uh, to local Sinn Féin TD for Louth and East Mead, Rory Omuraku, uh, who is somebody who knows a, a lot uh, about autism. A very good morning to you, Rory, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Your son and stepson are, are both autistic, are they? It's my uh, no, my son. My son is autistic. Okay. My son, my son, my son, Tolik is 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 autistic. So, in fairness, whatever I do know, I know on the basis of learning from him, mm. and generally also learning from my wife. Because uh, I think I spoke to you before, Michael, mm-hmm. and I spoke about times that there can be certain moments, and I think she believed I probably underplayed what those moments can can look like. But in fairness, myself and herself would have been at a meeting in O'Fee where Turlock is attending at this point in time. Mm. And I have to say, I am absolutely delighted with the school. And there's an element that the school is saying that they're really benefiting from Turlock being part of their community. But there are learnings across the board um, for all of us. Okay. So, mm. There was much talk about autism in the doll last week as well. There's a special committee on autism and uh, you made uh, a fairly extensive contribution to that. Uh, you were talking about life skills, uh, about children going to school, transitioning from school to third level and what needs to be in place for that to happen uh, and indeed equally what needs to be done for people who are on the spectrum to get jobs and to be comfortable in the workplace. No, 100%. Um, obviously, everybody nearly at this stage is aware of what's not available in relation to the early intervention, the, the assessments, the therapies, whether we're talking about psychologists, um, whether we're talking about occupational therapy, whether we're 
get about speech and language therapy and all that needs dealt with. But in fairness, the Autism Committee has looked at this far more holistically in the sense of this is about providing citizens and society with what's required. So that means we have to make situations, whether we're talking about education, whether we're talking about at home, whether we're talking about transitioning between primary and secondary school, whether we're talking about going to further education and then facilitating employment. Mm -hmm. And that means that there's a huge amount of steps that need to be made in relation to this. I think society is more up for this than it was previously. You get a lot more understanding. But we know even where, let's say, employers can avail of reasonable accommodation, um, let's say, funding grants, that there are difficulties in relation to it. And we would have had um, people in front of us in the committee, and one of them would have been Lisa Marie Clinton, um, who would have uh, come to me mm. pre- previously from Central Reach. And it, they, what she would have spoken about is the fact that in some cases, it's those that are working with the autistic person that should be able to uh, make the application. So you can have the assistive technology that may help in the workplace, but you might actually need it before you've even applied. And that sometimes it's a huge amount of onus to put on an employer or possibly on the autistic person themselves. And you mentioned Central Reach there. That's a a company that supplies assistive technologies. And you were told uh, of remarkable success rates. Oh yeah, no, no, look, absolutely spectacular in relate. Like here, I was very taken when I when I when I met with Lisa Marie. So um, I um, I had requested through um, Pauline Tully and um, from my own party, who sits on the Autism Committee, and the Chair Miguel Carrigy, You know that uh, I, I think it would have been it was really worthwhile having her in front of the committee. And luckily, the committee agreed. As I say, we've dealt with a huge amount of stakeholders, and that's dealing with advocates. Uh, therapists, autistic people themselves, and look, as I say, I think this is a worthwhile piece of work where we at least, and and I'm always afraid, you know, there's many a good report has been written in this space. Mm. There's many a good pilot scheme that has been put in place, but sometimes the follow-through that's required isn't needed. But I think we have an opportunity to lay out of, let's say, the lifelong plan that is required and what the resources are needed. And within that, there will also be the short-term fixes in relation to whether we're talking about the issues people have with carers allowance, whether we're talking about disability payments, whether we're talking about those grants for employers. And also, we need to engage this. We're talking about employment. Um, We've seen really good projects like uh, the Trinity Centre, which is engaged with a huge amount of employers. And those employers are having real successes in relation to employing uh, autistic people taking in on internships, those internships becoming full employment um, and they have learned a huge amount from it but we need to be able to use the state services, mm. that's where we have to have the likes of the local enterprise offices, we need the, those that work in social protection and um, we need those that work in uh, the ETBs that are engaging with employers to do this piece of work you know, so we create all those route maps that are absolutely necessary. Uh, obviously, an awful lot has to be done. Uh, you were talking to, uh, I think, about uh, special needs assistance uh, being required to, to allow people take up third level places uh, that they're entitled to. Uh, you were talking about that program central, from Central Reach, uh, which saw an increase in life skills of seventy six percent and saved two hundred and forty dollars. Uh, there was a, another project uh, that you were talking about. 
uh, that is used in schools called Project Search. Tell us more about that. Well, I suppose this is the, the, these are the ideas of making connections with uh, with, with with employers. Um, I think Nace Hospital is one of these. Some of this this is an American project that is you know it has been really really successful throughout America. And in fairness, I'm always dodgy in relation to we've seen an awful lot of bad examples when we are dealing with uh, when we are dealing with American systems. Um, but the thing is. What we've seen here is probably programs that have to work, programs where, let's say, the likes of insurance companies are willing to buy into in America. And obviously, those people that are lucky enough to be able to avail of it have seen real successes. So look at the percentages you're talking about there, Michael. Like when you hear them the first time or even the second time, you have to go back and check that that's actually correct. And obviously, uh, a huge amount of information um, is is being produced to produce those figures in the first place. Look, and we're talking about absolute successes across the board. And this, see, from a personal point of view, mm. we could be looking at a different trajectory in relation to, you know, my child or somebody else's child in relation to, you know, how their life can unfold. And that can be benefits for a business, for the company, um, for the person themselves, and also for the wider family. Like there is no downside in relation to, to, to any of this, you mm. know. And I think the uh, committee is going to do a considerable piece of work now, particularly in relation to the likes of uh, Project Search and others. And look, we're looking for multiple submissions. We will probably have to do a number of visits um, also in relation to just here ensuring that we have this particular, um, you know, information and that we're ensuring that we have best practice because that's what we're that's what we're talking about here we're talking about ensuring that we have best practice in play we want that on paper and then beyond that we want to be able to um we want to be able to put that you know uh, in play in society okay. so first of all we want this report we're talking about this piece of work let's say the committee work coming close enough to an end probably in here april and may and that we would be drawing a document together you know probably mm. for completion in june and i'd like to think that we would be dealing with a considerable amount as they say of those best practice pieces and what is needed and that's everything mm-hmm. from the interventions from the assessments from yeah. the therapy diagnosis yeah, yeah. Oh, di- well yeah. diagnosis goes mm. without saying look mm. we had we had people in from uh, we had the we had the uh, those who were involved and represent um, those involved in occupational therapy, psychologists, and speech and language therapists. And they said, we knew that, let's say, the yellow pack assessment that had been tried by the HSC wasn't going to cut the mustard. And they said, we have no difficulty in looking at alternative means mm-hmm. of, of, of assessments. But they said, nobody's talking to us about it. So we say, we need to be in the discussion with the paymasters and whoever else in relation to the HSC to look at how the best means of carrying out assessments are. I accept it can be a different assessment almost that's needed for, for every different child, but that can mm-hmm. mean a considerable amount of them will not need, you know, we hear sometimes about uh, assessments taking up anywhere from 20 hours up to 37 hours. So not everyone will necessarily need that. And then beyond that, what therapies can be provided? Because we know, even if we have the workforce planning piece in play now, we could be looking at four or five years down the line before we have enough throughput of those particular therapies. Well, the end goal, I suppose, is uh, to try to give everybody uh, the opportunity of realising their potential. And that is not too much of anybody to ask 
Uh, before you leave us, uh, can I ask you about uh, your Sinn Féin colleague, Owen O'Brien? He seems to be in a bit of hot water this morning after tweeting uh, a picture of landlords evicting tenants during famine times with members of... Uh, Angarda Siakana in that picture. The AGSI has taken great uh, offence to this and uh, the Minister for Justice is going to address uh, their conference today and suggest uh, that Ono Brin is encouraging attacks on members of uh, the Gardaí. What do you make of it? Well, I make that Ono Brin was trying to highlight the issue that a huge amount of people are dealing with in relation to the eviction ban. Are the Gardaí the enemy of the people? most certainly not. It's a piece of artwork and it depicts, I think, the images from 2018. It's from Frederick Street eviction where the guards were in attendance. I'm fairly sure Garda protocols have changed. Paints a picture of Gardaí helping British landlords evict Irish uh, tenants during the famine. It's an emotive connection with yeah what would have happened in uh, the 19th century, um, and I heard Antonis uh, Cunningham. Cunningham speak earlier today, obviously from the AGSI, and I understand that guards feel they are under significant amount of pressure at this point in time. And she spoke about the fact that she would have preferred had Ono Brim use some sort of text to just say that his issue was in relation to government policy, which mm-hmm. it definitely is. I think we need to take intent into account. I think the big issue here is the eviction ban and it being lifted and whether we have, and I'm fairly sure, I have no information that we have the resources in play. We know we still haven't got the criteria proper in relation okay. to the tenant in situ schemes and, and other such things. Um, so the AGSI and, and the minister, the AGSI and the minister are overreacting, are they? No, unfortunately, in this day and age, um, that's the difficulty when stuff on social media okay. and what can be put up very quickly sometimes okay. can cannot necessarily um, fall correctly. I mean, okay. that's the well, case because it's a pity we weren't dealing with no the no case the to answer. I, I think is what you're saying, Fiona O'Brien. I have run over time, so I have to leave it there. But thank you indeed uh, for commenting on that, uh, and indeed uh, for taking the time to be with us uh, this morning. That's Sinn Fein TD for Loud and East Mead, Rory O'Murakou. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Samaritans has published a survey into self-harm. Probably not surprising given that self-harm is mentioned once every hour in calls to Samaritan Ireland. Uh, The report, uh, the first of its kind, an open secret, self-harm and stigma in Ireland and Northern Ireland is as a result of speaking to some 769 adults. Let's uh, speak uh, to Louise Harma, who's the Policy Officer with Samaritans Ireland. Good morning to you, Louise, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, I understand uh, that people can start self-harming from as young as four years of age. On average, people self-harm you found for 13 years, but people can be self-harming for 50 years or a, a lifetime, as the case may be. Yes, good morning, Michael. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so we found that, um, I think, which maybe was a surprise, doesn't surprise to us and to maybe others as well, is exactly how early self-harm can begin and how really of a, a personal and individual experience it is for everyone. So some began to identify experiences, as you said, as young as four, um, and then some of those experiences could have lasted over 50 years um, for a lifetime. 
And then others did not begin in self-harming until they were, you know, in, in, in their middle age and in their 50s or so. So it really is quite um, an individual experience. Mm. What, what What is self-harm? Uh, I mean, uh, is that a, an answer that's, or a question that's answered easily? Definitely not. Um, so Samaritans would define self-harm as any deliberate act of self-poisoning or self-injury that is carried out without suicidal attempt. And that would be kind of the big, the big difference for Samaritans is that self-harm would, um, would not include suicidal attempts. But what we found in our research is that, again, that is a very um, personal definition. So um, is that it's a very individualized experience. And so there's no real universally accepted defini- definition of it, even within academia. And within our research, each participant kind of defined it in in their own way and we found that's a very important um thing that that should be respected is however that Mm. person identifies their self-harm and defines self-harm should really be um should really be respected of as their own experience okay there there's a a cost to it is there i mean consequences uh that uh, people aren't getting the same opportunities that they would otherwise have enjoyed yes we found that there is quite a bit of stigma just in society, for those for those who self harm, um, they were less likely to um, receive like interviews for for jobs. Um, they were fifty six percent of people identified that they would not rent an apartment to someone who had visible signs of self harm. Sixty four percent of people would not carpool with someone who had visible self visible signs of self harm. So there is definitely real world implications mm. um, to this. Okay, and. Is that because people think that if you self-harm, you're a, a troubled person and that that's a, a lot to take on in your life uh, by knowing somebody who self-harms? I think, and I think there's a lot of um, fear that is also associated with the fear of the unknown, the fear of, um, you know, potentially saying something that you think might make it, might make it worse. Um, around 90% of people who, who did have lived experience of self-harm who took part in our survey, um, they think that others are, will have a lower opinion of them um, or that they might even be afraid of them. Mm. Um, and so I think that's also how we kind of, you know, we, we, see, it, we see it play out is there's um, high levels of avoidance. Um, there's a willingness to help in principle, but then when it comes down to those more tangible acts, you know, mm. like renting an apartment, like carpooling, like offering a job, um, but the, the avoidance is really there, and I think that, that really comes from a lot of fear and uncertainty. Yeah, I see the vast majority, 77%, said they'd be willing to help, uh, but the vast majority, 64%, said they wouldn't carpool. Uh, uh, and I suppose actions speak louder than words. Yes, exactly, yeah. And so one of the things that you know, we'd like to stress is that um, you know, we really need to understand and need people to reflect on the difference of the willingness to help is there, and, and it's great. And, um, you know, around 75% of people said that if a close, you know, family member or friend confided in them that they'd self-harm, they would feel comfortable with that and they would want that. So it's just about translating that that willingness to, you know, to help in principle to, mm. to action. Yeah, but why do people self-harm? Are, are they troubled people? There is, um, there is no one reason that um, individuals would self-harm. It can be for... A variety of reasons, and it's very rarely just one thing that would that would lead them, you know, to that behavior. But um, they are definitely experiencing um, 
turmoil, emotional turmoil, and definitely should be encouraged to, to, to reach out for help because, you know, um, they need that support and they need that, you know, compassionate care um, when they're engaging in that behaviour. Okay. Well, we should remind people uh, that the Samaritans are always at the end of the phone or an email, as the case may be. Uh, There's many ways of contacting, but if people want to speak to someone, the Samaritans is at hand. 116123 is the free phone number, 116123, or email joe at samaritans.com. .ie. Louise, thank you indeed for speaking to us this morning. Much appreciated. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. That's uh, Louise Harma, the Policy Officer with Samaritans Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, Sinn Féin TD, Matt Carthy is uh, calling on government departments and state agencies uh, to intervene and help bring the Nurmur Hotel in Carrick-Macross back into action as a top-class commercial hotel. Matt Carthy is on the line and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, this is a hotel that closed its doors some time ago, a liquid data is in place now. Is there hope? Good morning, Michael. Hello to your listeners. Well, I would hope that the development that we saw last week where the High Court has appointed a provisional liquidator to the company that owns the Newmore Hotel will result in positive action over time. The truth is, Michael, something had to be done. There had to be an intervention at some level. I had raised this matter with uh, Taoiseach and with several government departments and the reason that we're in this controversy, so to speak, in respect of the the new Moore Hotel was because a scheme, a government scheme called the Immigrant Investor Programme was utilised to purchase the sale. Um, and my view is that that process also needs to be investigated because there does appear to have been a lack of oversight and um, and management of how those schemes operated in practice, particularly in respect of the new Moore Hotel, because as you say, the Newmore Hotel was for a long time a top-class um, top class tourism provider, but it was also a very important economic generator. It provided good employment for a long number of years, and the hotel was very well known, way beyond the mm. region. Mm. Many people's great memory of it is when Jack Charlton and that um, great Irish team of the early 90s would regularly come and stay in the hotel. But there were visitors from all over the the world. And I have to say it's an absolute shame that we're in the situation where we're in now. Um, We know that there were particular issues started to arise, arising from that sale um, to a new company back Mm. in 2018. And particularly after the pandemic where we saw for um, lengthy periods, staff were going without wages. We were raising seven, eight weeks at a time, time, wasn't it? In, yes, and in some mm. cases, staff um, haven't actually been um, to this day paid all that they were owed, particularly in terms of holiday pay and other entitlements. So late last year, it came to a head when workers actually had to stage a, a, a sit-in at one stage in advance of Christmas because they needed their money and they weren't getting it. Um, and we were told at that stage, and I had engaged with the owner of the hotel directly at that stage, that the staff would be paid up to date, that the hotel itself would close on the 1st of January in order for extensive refurbishment works to be carried out. And we had asked, well, how would the hotel be in a position to carry out these type of renovation works if they couldn't afford to pay their staff? But we were assured that the hotel itself would be closed, but that the leisure centre and the golf club would remain open, open as it stands the whole site, and it is a fantastic site, is virtually closed at the moment. So it came to a head, as I say, with the appointment of a liquidator. Now what we need to see is 
no effort spared in ensuring that the hotel actually returns to being uh, fully functional. As like a, a lot of hotels, so it was being used to house refugees, wasn't it? No, the Newmore Hotel was never used um, never used to house um, um, emergency accommodation. And um, to be quite frank about it, it's not a location that would be necessarily optimum for that. It's removed from the town. It is a tourism centre and it is a, you know, a, a has been mm. a five-star hotel. What we need it to be is a functional commercial hotel that will actually act as a driver for um, tourism and for um, wider economic activity, as it has traditionally done. Mm. And uh, in terms of uh, the sale of the hotel, what happens next? Well, the liquidator is appointed and I'll be trying to make contact with the liquidator to see. And it's a provisional liquidator, so there is time still, I think, for the actual owners to engage with the liquidator. The the liquidator was appointed at the request of somebody who has raised questions. It's not a given then that the hotel will be sold? No, um, I think necessarily, generally what happens in these instances is that the owner of the hotel is given an opportunity to work with the liquidator to see if a process can be found. Um, as I say, I think there's um, a number of questions going to be naturally asked in terms of you know, who owns a hotel mm. and closes it for three months without carrying any works, particularly a hotel of the class and standard of the Newmore Hotel. Um, nobody that I'm aware of, and I've done quite a bit of research, has been employed even to carry out you know, a basic engineer's report or carry out any um, basic renovation works. So there are questions, I would imagine, around the liquidity, liquidity of the company, and therefore that is why the liquidator has been appointed at the request, I understand, of people who claim to be owed money by the owners of the hotel. But as I say, something needed to happen. A liquidator is in place. What I would hope to happen and what I'd be asking this week is that government departments, particularly the Department of Enterprise, who obviously have a job in relation to economic development, the Department of Tourism, who obviously have a responsibility to encourage tourists to all regions, including this one, um, but also the Department of Justice, because the Department of Justice oversaw the Immigrant Investor Programme they facilitated the purchase of this sale. They facilitated the fact that the owners that are currently um, in, uh, in control of the Newmore were able to purchase it through a scheme that was controversial from the start because it granted them um, residency in Ireland and others who invested residency in Ireland. There had to be um, oversight of that. There had to be um, a, a, an overview at that level to ensure that the money that was being raised by um by that programme was actually being used for that purpose. And, as I say, questions have mm. arisen as to whether that was the case. So, therefore, I think the Department of Justice also have a responsibility to make sure that we can actually move to a point where the new more is... Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Turning to be the class hotel that it once was. And nothing uh, is happening at the hotel. Is there even golf? At the moment, very limited. And um, my understanding is that virtually all staff have now left the, left the site. There may be one or two that are that are doing little bits of work um, th- there. But up mm. until last week, my understanding was that virtually nothing had been happening. The leisure centre has been closed for several weeks now because... And does that mean their jobs are gone or, uh, I mean, uh, would their jobs transfer over despite uh, the the break in service uh, to the, the next employer? So the, the, the workers have engaged SIPTO who have been providing very good support and guidance to them and um, they themselves, I understand, are in the process of uh, legal action. And of course, I don't want to say anything that would jeopardise any of the, any of that. Um, but let's put it this way: the staff of the Newmore were excellent. They would have been well known as being very courteous, very diligent, um, very hard working. Um, and it is uh, absolutely shameful that they have been treated the way that they have. And I think they need to be commended for their resilience and their engagement with the company because they haven't allowed their own rights um, to be undermined, and they won't do so. My understanding is that they will they they will be pursuing and striving to ensure that all of their rights and entitlements will be protected as a zoning right. I'm sure a lot of people hope uh, that uh, the hotel will reopen and that the staff uh, will be looked after for that matter. Uh, I was speaking to your colleague Rory O'Murico a a little bit earlier on in the programme about the hot water that Ono Bren appears to have found himself in about uh, this tweet, uh, Minister for Justice uh, accusing uh, him of encouraging people to attack Gardaí. Uh, The Association of Garda Sergeants and Inspectors are none too happy uh, with Deputy O'Brien, uh, do you agree with Rory O'Murku that there's no case to answer? Well, what I would say is the big issue of the past 12 weeks is that the government have ended the um, ban on no-fault evictions and that's going to result in people across this region becoming homeless. Mm. And, it, I and, and, that, and you'd liken their landlords to British landlords during the famine evicting uh, poor Irish tenants during the famine uh, with the assistance of Angarda Síochána. It doesn't uh, really no, I speak I highly I of Angarda Síochána. I wouldn't do uh, I wouldn't do any of that. I have to have to say, and um, you know, I think that you know there there is obviously a very sensitive relationship in Ireland with evictions, um, and I think the artist who depicted the picture that has become this uh, uh, this source of controversy. Um, was 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 making an artistic an artistic point. Um, you know, I have to say, um, 
it wouldn't be something I would have done to release a picture of of that nature because it would, in the first instance, allow government to deflect from their own actions in respect of what they have done over the past couple of weeks. I spend all day Friday actually mm. engaging with my own local authority in respect of people who have become homeless um, um, as a result of other issues. Not okay, so you're saying it was a, a mistake but not a hanging offence, I, I take it. What about the response from the AGSI? Do they deserve an apology? Well, look, at, um, I haven't been engaged in this uh, in this entire controversy at all. I've saw some of the commentary over Twitter, but my absolute um, 100% efforts this week will be on actually engaging with my own local authority in respect of actually providing emergency accommodation. Mm. In some instances, isn't there for people who are made homeless. That's where politicians need to be engaged, and I think anything deflects, deflects from that as our priority um, is unhelpful at this stage. Okay, so you don't have an opinion on whether uh, Owen O'Brien should apologise or not? I think Owen should engage with whoever need, whoever mm. feels that they have been um, they, that they have been disparaged in some way. But I know the intention of everything that we have been doing has been to put a, a focus on the government for what they have done, which is ensure that more people will be made homeless over mm. the next number of weeks. Anything that deflects from that is unhelpful because this is a big job of work. This is going to be a crisis that will affect every single okay. community. Well, and I know there will be some that will be eager to use any opportunity to deflect away from that, and I think that's something that we should be all avoiding. OK, well, we'll be focusing on that terrible situation that people are finding themselves in in the next few minutes. We'll be leave it there, and thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Sinn Féin TD for Cavan Monaghan, Matt Carthy. Now, a text message from Damien, uh, who has uh, been in touch with us and I think may prompt other people to get in touch with us and it could end up on us being very busy getting in touch with the county councils uh, across the region because there are an awful lot of potholes. Uh, He says, Michael, I'm getting on to you to see if you could bring up uh, the state of the Termin Fecken Road. I've been trying to get in t- contact with Louth County Council, but to no avail. There's going to be a serious accident on that route shortly as people are driving on the wrong side of the road to miss the potholes. If you could bring it up just to let people be aware, be careful when driving on this road. Thank you, Damien, for your text message. It certainly is a problem. I was driving on that road yesterday uh, and I was driving on the wrong side of the road to avoid the potholes, some very deep potholes. uh, And after the rain, some of them were full of water and difficult to see. Uh, It could be dangerous for uh, an awful lot of different reasons. uh, And it could also uh, have a a serious impact on vehicles and uh, result in costly damage. Uh, But it's just one road. I don't know what's gone on this winter and I don't think it's the fault of the council because uh, I think certainly in Drogheda, Loud County Council did a massive programme of works at resurfacing roads uh, at the beginning of the year but they all seem to have ended up potholed, whatever is going on. Uh, we will contact Loud County Council for you, Damien, uh, and if uh, there's any other roads uh, that we should be bringing to the attention of the council, uh, do let us know. Uh, but <laughs> I have a feeling they're scratching their heads themselves <laughs> saying, hey, what's gone wrong? Uh, it's been a remarkable winter uh, and, and an awful lot of potholes uh, for the councils to deal with. Anyway, if you'd like to get in touch with us about that or something else this morning, we'd love to hear from you as always. Our telephone number, 0419832000. That's 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp us if you want to send us a message, 0861800658 is the number, 0861800658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. You see somebody uh, in touch saying the Cockle Road has huge potholes on both sides. Very busy road with lots of trucks uh, for that matter. Thank you indeed. Uh, we'll uh, tell the council that you've been complaining uh, and bring it to their attention. But let's talk about uh, the eviction ban that is no more because it lapsed at midnight on Friday night and eviction started up again on Saturday, April Fool's Day to mark the day. The Cost of Living Coalition held a rally outside of Leinster House where hundreds of people heard calls for the reinstatement of the no-fault eviction ban and indeed uh, to evict the government. Let's speak uh, to Sue Shaw, who's CEO of the Irish Senior Citizens Parliament. Good morning to you, Sue, and thanks for joining us. I, I think a lot of us have been very taken aback by seeing and hearing from people in their older years who have been renting and facing eviction. How how big a problem is it, do you think? Um, In terms of the overall percentage, Michael, I'm not sure that the figures are as high, say, as for families presenting. But it is a rising issue, and I think it's only going to get worse. I think it's going to become a figure that frightens people as we move on through this crisis. Mm. Um, Like in February alone, we had 13 pensioners present in Dublin for homeless seeking emergency accommodation. We're also aware that many people who are older will look to turn to family or to friends before they'll actually present. So we believe, like in in the last week, I had two calls. One, a man of 68 living in his car. Now, we were able to help him out through the support of a loan. We have another woman facing eviction on the 14th of April. She has complex medical needs, um, but there is absolutely no accommodation for her. Mm. And she's very concerned about listening to what some of the TDs are saying. Don't don't move. Stay where you are. And it, it seems that a, a lot of the people who are in this situation, the older people who are in this situation, uh, have medical needs or complex medical needs, as uh, the case may be. And uh, I presume that comes uh, with uh, getting older uh, for a lot of us. Uh, we're not in the same uh, state of uh, good health uh, as we would have been when we were younger. So it, it, it compounds the problem. It's, a, it's doubly as bad, if you like, Sue. Absolutely. And I think things that, well, I suppose the standard stuff that happen as we age, for a lot of people, high blood pressure seems to be. Now, that may be a lot of mm. reasons for that, but stress is one of the massive contributors. Arthritis is hugely impacted by stress. Mm. Now, the stress of losing your home when you're 65 or older, if you're 55, 58, doesn't really matter, that, that, that age cohort. Once you're moving into that, because the reality is you're never going to get you're not going to be able to afford a mortgage. It's just not going to happen. Mm. How do you afford to rent? Uh, I take this is the future. Uh, If you can get somewhere to live, that a lot of people will be renting. But how do you afford to rent uh, when you get older? You see, that's the difficulty, I think. And that's the tsunami, I think, that's coming at us, is that we have people now in their late 50s, early 60s, full-time employment, but maybe in jobs that didn't offer the potential to have a occupational or private pension with it. Just And a lot of people in that age cohort are in that bracket. Mm. So they're coming off a wage that they can just about make these high rents, but are now coming onto the state pension, which max is 265. Mm. There's no way you're going to be able to afford to rent. Mm. 
well, on that. They'll get assistance with housing costs, though, will they not? Yes, that's the hope. But at the end of the day, they won't be high. It's not that they're not high on the priority list. But if you look at the lack of accommodation, then families tend to come first. Kids are our priority. And I'm not arguing with that. I'm just saying but that there isn't enough accommodation to go around. We don't have social housing that can accommodate people. The private rental market is, is shrinking for whatever those reasons are. And we just don't have the accommodation to offer people. So even if there is some financial support, and at that, it, it's a limited support. Do you know what I mean? So I just think we need to face the reality of how do we go about changing that before it becomes worse than it actually is now? Mm. And it is a real struggle for people to afford. Mm. And, and a lot of older people who are in rented accommodation, like the two people I spoke to, one man had been in his accommodation 15 years. So his rent, his landlord, obviously he needed it for family and the same with the other woman. She had a rent, she'd been there 10 years, her rent was affordable, she could manage it. She had a very decent landlord, neither of them were critical of their landlord. They both wanted it for family, so it wasn't a case of the house being able to be bought by the council. Mm. So, and they have presented, obviously, and have absolutely, it's hostile accommodation. Yeah, right, really and, right, looking at. And, and they were paying low rents, I, I take it from what you're saying, and now they're going into I don't think low, market. but manageable. Mm. manageable. But, but, lo- but, but, but lower than the going rate. Yes, yeah. I so, think a little so, lower so, than so, the going so, rate, yeah. yes. So that adds to the problem. Now the so the, Exactly. Yes, they're going to now look at try and compete in a market where, like the bottom line is, if I'm in full-time employment and I'm in a reasonably good job, I'm struggling to afford the rents. Mm. But if I'm in a better job, I can afford to pay and compete and up the rent. Packing up and... people who are homeless and who are evicted and just have the standard average income, they just can't afford to compete in a very limited market for a company. It's very limited, yeah. There's uh, very little on offer and an awful lot of it is very expensive. But packing up and starting uh, again, starting over in a a new house, uh, if you can get a house or an apartment or whatever, is a very stressful thing for any of us uh, to do, but easier probably for young people to start afresh in new territory. Uh, I think it's probably true to say that most older people are going to want to live close to where they've been living for the last 15 or 20 or 30 years. Yeah, And surrounded by a community that they know. They know their GP. Do you know what I mean? They know their local library. They know their shopping centre. They know their chemist. All of those things that matter. Their friends are there. They may do their bingo or they may do bridge or whatever it is that is their activity. And they do that. But they do it in a community they're familiar with. The reality is, even if they were lucky enough to be afforded, to be able to afford a house in a new area, mm. the reality is that it isn't going to be a house. They'd be in hostile accommodation for a period, mm. emergency accommodation. How do you ask somebody yes. in their 60s, 70s or 80s? We've seen people in, in trouble in their 80s uh, who yes, don't know where they're going to go. How do you ask them to live in a hostel? Well, the man I spoke about when he, he was sleeping in our car park, that's how we came across him. And he, he said mm. the first time he rang me, it was just before Christmas. So off he went he, he and he came back three weeks later and he said, I can't do the hostel. I'm too scared. Mm. I'm just too scared, he said. Mm. How do you ask anybody to live in a hostel? Alone stepped up yeah. and he's mm. now in accommodation. But how it's hard, like young people talk about the fear of living in hostels. Mm, Do you yeah. know what I mean? Young, yeah. fit, able, young men. And Full men. of drugs uh, and uh, temperamental people, I suppose, as a result. 
Uh, people who have in, in instability in their life, who have issues that, uh, do you know what I mean? And yeah. if there is an issue around addiction, well then, older people may be a softer touch. Yeah, beaten up you know, or robbed or whatever, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot I of reasons. Most people are vulnerable to being beaten up, but mm. I think when you're slightly older, but a guaranteed income from the state, then you may be seen as that. But I genuinely think hostel accommodation for everybody is very, very difficult. It's more so for older people. Mm. And the idea of packing up and starting afresh, as you say, Michael, is just really scary. Mm. Particularly if it's not going to be in a in a community or an area that they know. Yeah. None of us. Like I've just moved house. And let me tell you, packing up after 30 yeah, years was yeah, scary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I knew what I was doing in Chosen. Oh, I dread the thoughts, my God. Yeah, it really is a, yeah. a big thing. Yeah, there's so and much I think, to do. Mm. I think the reality for many of the people who are contacting us, and for those people who, like I've done the, the cost of living mm. uh, protests, this is the only one I missed for family reasons, but I've done them and I've listened to people talk about how far they believe the the, the gap between themselves and the politicians who represent them are. That there's like, it's a lack of awareness of just how deep the crisis is. Well, and I, I think, yes, they I think do. the politicians would argue otherwise. Uh, I would no, say I think they do, and many of them that, do. That this is a bad situation, uh, but it would be uh, a worse situation if uh, you kept the ban in place and more people would end up in this dreadful, shameful situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. But, but no, I, that's I'm what the politicians sure are saying. And I, well, I don't necessarily agree that I think the bottom line is the ban was never a forever. It's not a forever solution. However, the period of it would have, may have allowed certain things to happen. And I'm not sure that did happen. And I think many people, including all of the experts who work around homelessness, you're talking about Focus Ireland, the Home yeah. Coalition, all of those to raise the roots, the people who manage those, all of them said clearly that in the group discussion, in the, in the consultation process, they advised how deep this would bite. Mm. And they themselves felt it fell on deaf ears. It was like if you have people working at the coalface and are saying to you, look, we need a period and here's some of the things that may need to happen. And that's been utterly ignored. Yeah. And then the reality is there is a gap between, it's not that they don't realise the, the, the crisis of it. It's that the experience of it is so far removed, I think. Right. Well, um, that, that's, a, that's a difficulty for us. Well, there's new figures today uh, from the RTB uh, as of July 2022. Um, the notice to quit, notice of termination, uh, we're looking at 4,741 notices to quit. Uh, 60% arose from cases where the landlord wanted to sell the property like the people you're mm-hmm. talking about 16.7% mm-hmm. were cases where the landlord or a family member wanted to move into the property uh, these statistics are carried in the Irish Times today and they say that yeah. 15.7% cited a breach of tenant obligations uh, and you and I think anybody else uh, who says that the ban should stay in place wouldn't have a problem with those people being uh, evicted it's the no fault <laughs> It's the no-fault piece. And and if you're not a good tenant, and if you have issues and your landlord has issues, then no, no, hold on a minute. You have every right as a landlord to say, no, time up, late. But Mm. if you, it it is the no-fault. And in both of the cases that I'm referring to here, they were family members moving back in. Mm. 
So it wasn't an option that the state were going to step yeah. in and help out. These so figures, 4,741 notices to quit, uh, they were served in the third quarter of 2022, so they fall now. Due uh, now, And yes. that, that is at least 474 people or uh, quite uh, probably multiples of, of that number because uh, uh, more than one person will live in the house and that type exactly. of thing. Exactly. So there's a, a lot of hardship ahead. I think there is, and I also think that there's not a full. The figures are not truly reflective of the of how of the situation. We would know that from a, a lot of our members, and a high percentage of our members are saying that they have had sons or daughters return to them with their families. Mm. Some because they were served an eviction office, others because they couldn't afford rents, and others because they couldn't save for a mortgage with rising costs and rising tenancy, rising rents. Okay, but well we're going to be hearing they're a lot of stories. that are well hidden. Do you know what I mean? They're, yeah. they're, oh, they're yeah. not counted, yeah. but in reality, they are homeless. If they didn't have mum and dad, then they are homeless. Okay, so I have to leave it there. The reality of uh, the situation will unfold in the coming weeks and Absolutely. months. Yeah. Thank you. As yeah, I and say, it's heartbreaking, but thank you very much. It really much. is. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you indeed. Sue Shaw, bye, CEO bye. of uh, the Irish Senior Citizens Parliament. Uh, just a, a couple of texts that have come. Uh, in the last while, uh, somebody saying that there's a, a pothole at their gate that is as big as Ayr's Rock. Uh, and uh, they're obviously not happy about it. I don't know what happened over the winter months, uh, but it, it's a, a good year for potholes, a bad year for county councils. Uh, Siobhan in touch saying, I agree with the previous text, the term in Feckin Road is dangerous. In order to avoid some craters, you're driving on the wrong side of the road. It's in an appalling condition and not fit for purpose. Thank you indeed, uh, Siobhan, for your WhatsApp message to us today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to the Russians uh, and what it is uh, they've been up to off Ireland's west coast. We know that uh, the Irish Defence Forces have uh, been monitoring a a number of Russian ships. A statement uh, from the Defence Forces says this week Ogli Naharan have monitored Russian commercial ships both outside and inside Ireland's exclusive economic zone, EEZ. As part of their maritime defence and security operations, the Irish Air Corps' maritime patrol aircraft have observed Russian commercial vessels in international waters off the island of Ireland. These vessels have now left Ireland's EEZ. That's uh, the exclusive economic zone, but uh, the Defence Forces say they continue to monitor the waters to make sure uh, that there is nothing untoward happening. Let's speak uh, to independent senator, former member of uh, the Defence Forces, Jared Crockwell. Uh, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, is there anything to be concerned about here? Uh, good morning, Michael. Good morning to your listeners. And once again, thanks for having me on. Um, there is always something to be concerned about when you have Russian craft in our economic zone. In particular, off the West Coast now is one of the fastest um, cyber uh, network cables coming into Galway, one of the fastest in the world. And um, that would be of concern. 
any time a Russian vessel sails into our economic zone, um, or indeed any other country's vessel, we are interested in what they're doing there. Now, there is some justification for those ships to have sheltered in, in off the West Coast over the last few days. Indeed, I had relations travelling to Spain by ferry um, over the last few days, and the ferries were cancelled because the weather was so bad in the Bay of Biscay. So... Are we to be concerned? Always be concerned when they're there. Are we to be overly concerned on this occasion? I don't think so, Michael. Okay, it may have been bad weather, but uh, you'd uh, be hoping at least that it had nothing to do with sabotaging those uh, communication cables. Yeah, absolutely, Michael. I mean, you and I have often spoken, and your interest in all things defence is greatly appreciated. Um, I mean, we have significant data travelling through our, uh, close to Ireland uh, from the United States to Europe. Um, some some 96% of all data passes through the Irish economic zone. And the sad state of affairs, whether we like it or not, is our naval service is no longer able to uh, shadow these ships when they come in. Uh, so we really don't know what they're doing and we don't have the capacity to look under the waves and see what they're doing either. So uh, it is always extremely concerning. Uh, imagine a situation, Michael, where we wake up one morning and we have no ele- electricity or water supply is cut off. We've no access to our banking system. That's what cyber a cyber attack is all about. So these are the things that we've got to be constantly aware of. All right. Uh, well, I was just about to say uh, that the Russians will be <laughs> pleased to hear you say that uh, it may have just been down to the weather uh, uh, until uh, you threw out uh, that theory. I don't know if you've seen the letter to the Irish Times from uh, the Russian ambassador today, Yuri Vilatov. I uh, just read the opening paragraph for our readers. He says there's been yet another story in the Irish Times devoted to the passage of two Russian commercial ships through the area of North Atlantic in the vicinity of Ireland and uh, it's uh, he says the purpose of the story seems to be to create an impression of suspicious Russian maritime activity allegedly aimed at sabotaging subsea communication cables, an attempt so obviously ill-conceived that a story itself concludes that there was nothing sinister in the manoeuvres of the ships only the desire to avoid bad weather on their way to Africa. Uh, He's not somebody uh, who has the full trust of everybody in this country, of course. Absolutely not, Michael. Two days before the Ukrainian war, uh, the the Russian-Ukrainian war started, uh, the same man was sitting before the Joint Directors Committee on Foreign Affairs and Defence and told us we were imagining that Russia had any uh, intention to attack Ukraine. Two days later, they sent their tanks, their guns and their um, uh, rockets into Ukraine and they have been there ever since. Mm. Thankfully, the strong people of Ukraine have managed to hold them at bay uh, and it's going to be a long war of attrition unfortunately. And now uh, Russia takes up the presidency of the United Nations Security Council. There's something ironic about that is there not? Well, I've never been a supporter of the United Nations Security Council. It's a glorified talking shop, uh, which we uh, claimed massive success in winning a seat on it. When you look at who's running it now, what does the seat we won mean? Absolutely nothing. Uh, These superpowers 
all of them, uh, use the United Nations Security Council to suit their own needs. And the irony of, of having Russia as the um, uh, chair, the current chair of that committee, means if Ireland was to want to send peacekeepers somewhere in the world, they could actually veto that because of the triple lock. So uh, it has just turned the United Nations Security Council into a farce totally. And the quicker it is disbanded and reorganised that no country has a veto and that they all are subject to the United Nations rules the better. Mm. Uh, But be that as it may um, they have the veto uh, and they now also have uh, the presidency. Uh, uh, Is that an issue that Ireland should be objecting to uh, publicly? Absolutely. The minister should be out screaming to the high heavens that this is absolutely unacceptable to have a country that's involved in a terrorist campaign in Europe uh, chairing the United Nations Security Council is anathema mm. and that's the best way I could put it Okay, uh, when it, you talk about uh, the ships off uh, the west coast uh, and we see this letter from the ambassador saying uh, there was nothing to see here, they were just sheltering from bad weather um, should there be some evidence to that uh, effect given by the Russian authorities? I'd love to see some evidence to that effect, but I'm not sure uh, that we could trust anything they would show us, being totally honest about it. The only way we will ever protect our economic zone is if we put the money that's required into defence and have a naval service and an air force that is capable of uh, 24-7-365 monitoring of all of the resources off our coast, both to the east and the west. Mm. Uh, a defence forces that has been thoroughly shamed, has it not? Um, what are your thoughts, uh, given the revelations of the last week? Uh, look, Michael, I was devastated when, when I uh, read the report uh, and and still trying to come to grips with it. I served and had wonderful years, five wonderful years in the Defence Forces, and thousands like me did the same. And now our relations and our friends are looking at us mm. and wondering, were we part of a bullying campaign? Yeah. Did we abuse women? Now, in my time, there were no women in the Defence Forces. Mm. But I think what has happened here is they've got to clean this mess up straight away They've got to get the the, uh, inquiry up and running without delay. And those that are in the organisation that are guilty of these things have to be shifted out and quickly. Mm. And then... And arrested. And arrested. Uh, I mean, we're talking about about rapists uh, and all sorts of criminality, uh, and not just against men, against women uh, as well. Uh, But there's also that question of who knew what, uh, as you say, and I can understand... Uh, you believing uh, that people are, are looking to you as a former member of uh, the Defence Forces or any member of the Defence Forces wondering where you part of that culture. Uh, but it, it's a culture that is said uh, to have been well known and a lot said about Tom Clonan's report of 20 years ago. Uh, is, is it understandable to you that the Chief of Staff says he didn't know anything about it? I think the chief has been misquoted. Um, I spoke to to his people, and they tell me what he actually said. He was was that he was not aware of the scale of the problem. Now, look, I mean, bottom line on it is, you're you're one hundred percent correct. For the last five ministers for defence, they have known about it. The secretary generals of the Department of of um, Defence, the uh, special uh, HR 
strategic HR uh, assistant general secretary in the Department of Defence was aware of it. All of the senior officers of the Defence Forces were aware of it. So there is nowhere for anyone to hide. And um, from my point of view now, I will stand four square behind uh, Sean Clancy, the chief of staff, to clean this up, ably supported by the secretary general of the Department of Defence and the minister. He must be given the resources. And I'm talking about civilian resources that have nothing to do with defence, Department of Defence or any government department. Bring in the experts and help him to change the culture. Maybe when, the, when, when that's completed, people can talk about whether or not he should resign after he finishes the job. But I want to give him the resources to do it. Changing heads now will do nothing. And we very quickly go for heads in this country. We've gone for a guard the commissioner before and she has been taken out by the political system. So let the political system stand back now. They, they closed their eyes, uh, hear nothing, see nothing approach over the last 20 odd years. So I, I have no time for the politicians now craw thumping and crying over this. Okay. Thank you indeed uh, for that and for joining us uh, this morning. That's Independent Senator Jared Crockwell, uh, formerly uh, a member of uh, the Defence Forces. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. A couple of uh, people in touch with us asking uh, about the bingo numbers uh, that aren't online, apparently asking uh, if I know anything about it. I don't know anything about that, uh, but I, I am passing on the message and I, I know that it's being rectified as we speak. They should be up pretty soon or apologize for that. When it comes to potholes uh, somebody else saying the council don't repair potholes properly uh, and they never have. I've photos of potholes in Atboy where they literally threw a bit of tar into them and then drove across uh, it with the wheel of a machine. They're disgraceful, says our caller. Thank you indeed. I think they're probably those uh, emergency quick fit things. Usually, in fairness, I think it's true to say that the council comes back uh, and does a proper job, uh, that that's uh, a temporary solution so that people don't lose the wheels off their car or their bicycle or whatever uh, you may be travelling on. Uh, just uh, going back to the last conversation that we had uh, with uh, Senator Jared Crockwell, uh, a letter in the Irish Times today from John Cuff, who's in County Meath, uh, and he says, as we live through many of George Orwell's 1984 predictions, even his wildest animal farm dreams would not have dreamed up this week's announcement that Russia assumed the presidency of the United Nations Security Council. The same Russia whose actions have turned this country upside down from housing to energy due to her stance on the invasion of Ukraine. Nothing can be done, dear chap, they say. It's in the charm where a number of permanent countries essentially, essentially run the charade. Russia, the US, China, France and the UK each back their boy when the majority sanctioned them via veto. Hence, the most sanctioned country, Israel, carries on regardless thanks to America, while Syria and Iraq continue thanks to Russia. Name your own poison for the other three permanent members, essentially Five nations run a globally drawn army under the title of peacekeepers. We have sat on the Security Council since 2021. Can our leaders tell the UN of our total discomfort with the whole lost ideals of 
the UN. Let's hear it for Ireland. Uh, Michal Martin had a lot to say about Russia up to a few months ago. Now as foreign minister, he can instruct Ireland to veto the entire charade that would legitimise our once proud, held neutral stance. As I say, that's a, a letter from John Cuff in County Meath that's published in the Irish Times today. Thanks, John, for that. Uh, P.O. Smith, Councillor P.O. Smith, Labour Councillor in Drogheda, that is, has been in touch about uh, the evictions and uh, the demand for housing. He says most of the demand for social housing in Louth is for one or two bedroom units, then three or four beds. My worry regarding evictions is the effect it'll have on children. There isn't capacity in Louth County Council to accommodate large numbers of families unfortunately. Really is a a very trying situation and a very worrying situation for a a lot of people uh, and I don't think that there's any doubt uh, about that whatsoever. Uh, Let's talk uh, about uh, another local issue. Uh, We heard earlier from Sinn Féin TD Rory O'Murakou. He was speaking about some of the problems in uh, the Cooley Mountains in the Dáil last week. I'm talking about the Commonage in the Cooley Peninsula um, and I'm talking about the fact that, and I know Loud County Council and the Dog Wardens and even the Garda Síochána are attempting to ensure that people understand the responsibilities that dog owners have. But I think we do need to look at the legislation that underpins this. Um, and I'm not entirely sure what effectual control of the dog means. Now, if everyone did the right thing, we probably wouldn't need half the rules we need. But this is a very specific issue. Uh, I have no doubt that the Minister has had representations in relation to that. I know there are wider issues. I spoke to, uh, uh, I spoke to a farmer earlier, we'll call him Tom, probably because that's his name. Um, and the fact is, Tom spoke about the particular issues um, and about that we really need responsibility. We also need enforcement. He spoke about sometimes even when dogs are on leads, huge animals, the leads could be 25 foot long and that there would be no chance of controlling. So we do need to look at this. And I know the difficulties in relation to enforcement. He also spoke about the issue at times when you have people who are carrying out other outdoor pursuits, possibly motorbikes and quads and all the rest of it. I think there needs to be engagement with people who are engaged in in all these sort of activities. And we do need responsibility. We do need good manners. But I think there is an element. And I know people are talking about possible bylaws. But I think we need to look at those legislative pieces also. So I would ask the Minister uh, what he plans to do in relation to this particular issue. All right, that's uh, Rory O'Murakou talking about some of the problems that we're all so aware of uh, in terms of uh, trying to farm sheep, dogs uh, being uh, a big one, but also then for the farmers having to deal with motorbikes and quads. We've been talking about this forever, it seems. Uh, maybe someday uh, something will be done about it. Uh, we're, uh, that was Rory O'Murakou, as I, I say. Uh, we also spoke earlier in the programme uh, to Padre Tobin, uh, and uh, here, here's a contribution uh, from uh, the AIN2 TD to the Dáil last week. Recent elections in the Netherlands have sent shockwaves through their political establishment. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of thousands of citizens broke with all expectations and voted for the Farmers' Party in protest against their political establishment. In Ireland, we have a similar disconnect between many people in regional and rural Ireland and the political bubble that exists in this country. The majority of political parties in this country are heavily Dublin-based. Indeed, there are 10 counties currently uh, in this country with no minister. Yet there's one Dublin constituency, uh, Dunlera Ratdown, where all the TDs are ministers. Now, 40% currently of all the ministers in this country are from Dublin as well. Farmers, 
in Ireland are suffering one farmers in Ireland are suffering big stuff at the moment. One third of farmers are making a loss currently. So they're not even making a living out of their farm. Another one third of farmers are currently have to work off the farm to make a living. And only a third of farmers that exist in this country currently uh, are making a living out of that farm. And many of them are living in fear. They want to do the right thing in terms of climate change. But they feel that this, this government is disproportionate in terms of loading the climate costs on their families, while at the same time opening data centres, importing uh, Brazilian beef, etc. When will this government treat rural and regional Ireland more than a box-ticking exercise? All right, uh, some serious issues there, but also uh, some amusement, I think, uh, at the idea that uh, Richard Boyd Barrett is a government minister. And apologies to Richard. Tobin, I, I think you're referring to the constituency of Dublin Ratdown rather than the council area of Daenerys Ratdown. Um, but um, as, as I often say to um, TDs from all parts of Ireland, there's a lot more to Dublin than Dublin 2, 4 and 6. Uh, and I think often people, and I often hear this comment from, from, from rural deputies about, um, uh, about, about Ireland beyond the M50. Um, I'm somebody from Dublin who's lived beyond the M50 for almost all my entire life. Uh, so uh, I think those of us in Dublin need to um, get around the country a lot and get to know rural Ireland and every county that's in it. And I, I make the point of getting to every county at least once a year. But perhaps TDs from outside of Dublin need to get to know Dublin a bit better because uh, how many know where Dublin 24 is, for example, or uh, Dublin 13? There's a lot more to Dublin uh, than um, Dublin 2, 4, and 6 are one. And I can guarantee you that Dublin Rat Down is not the same place as Dunleary Rat Down. Um, but anyway, another day's work. <laughs> They are great, <laughs> but there's more to Dublin than Dublin 2, 4 and 6 and 1. All right, uh, we'll have to take the Taoiseach's word for that. Uh, Leo Radker responding uh, to Aintu's Patter Tobin there. Now, uh, somebody in touch with us saying I've been on to our local county councillor for the last three months about the state of the road to Port Graveyard, just one of the potholes uh, huge by uh, the sounds of it. Thank you indeed uh, for sharing that with us. It's very hard to understand why there's so many potholes this year because, I mean, I'm no expert on it, but I think it's that the rain gets into a crack, it freezes, and then uh, that makes uh, the road lift and then results in a, a pothole. But we haven't had that much cold weather this year, uh, and uh, it seems very hard to understand why there's so many potholes. Maybe somebody will explain that to me, but we haven't got the time right now because our time has run out on us once again. Thanks to Maggie McGuire for researching today. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme. That's tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.